Gracious Heavenly Father, we pause uh, once again to be reminded of the great God that you are, majestic in holiness, awesome in power. And we pray that even now as we open up your word, that you would give us soft and tender hearts to hear your word, and not only to hear it, but to meditate upon it, to appropriate it to our lives, that we would be people who would not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. We thank you for the fact that we have the privilege of your word and that your word exposes us. It is, It cuts to the very core of who we are and to the intentions and motives of our hearts. And so, Father, thank you for the blessing that that is, that our sin, yes, is serious. That's why Christ went to the cross to die for our sins. But he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And because of that, we are able to live a life of obedience out of love and joy and gratitude and worship unto you. Help us to do that as we respond in obedience to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, brethren, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30 is our text for this morning. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word in honor of God's word, please do so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 or rather, verses 25 through 30. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was, dis- and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, we've been considering, as you know, the privilege of gospel partnership on Sunday mornings. There's a wonderful reality that our gracious God has saved us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. And if that wasn't enough that God saved us, He's also called us into partnership with Himself. As you know, He could have done all of this Great Commission work all by Himself. But God has called us to partner with Him, with the God of the universe, to be about the Great Commission. And not only has He called us into partnership with Himself and saved us, if that wasn't enough, He's called us into wonderful partnership with one another. We've been talking so much about the privilege of gospel partnership. Uh, We got a chance, as Pastor Paul mentioned a little while ago, to see this partnership in action on Friday night right at the Valentine's Banquet where people were working together side by side, uh, getting food ready, serving, setting up, babysitting. That was beautiful partnership ministry at work to put together an event that edified and built up uh, marriages. So it was beautiful to see that. And so we have this undeserved privilege of locking arms as Christian brethren in gospel partnership together because we are one gospel team. And this theme of gospel partnership, brethren, is so important. It's important. It's very much something that flies in the face of our culture, if you will. We have a culture right now that is very individualistic. 
You might say, ah, there's people that lock arms with each other and it's more about calling people to movements and all of that together. Yes, but as soon as things don't go their way and their agendas are not moving forward, it's all individualism, right? So we have a culture that already, as the judges, the book of Judges says, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so as Christians, we're reminded through this series that we need to be different. That we're called to live in peaceful partnership with one another, striving in one direction, serving together for the sake of the Gospel. And so this is where we've been already in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. We've seen that in our Gospel partnership with one another, we can derive joy in the midst of our sacrifice. We learned this from the example of the Apostle Paul, if you remember. And then in verses 19-24 through 24 of chapter 2, we saw that in our Gospel partnership with one another, we may derive encouragement amidst our service. We learn this from the example of Timothy, Paul's child in the faith. And today, we want to consider that in our gospel partnership, we can be of mutual comfort to one another amidst our suffering. And we see this in the example of one brother by the name of Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. And you know what's interesting about Epaphroditus? is that he was just a regular member of the church in Philippi. From what we know from the text, this is really important. Because we may look at the example of Christ and say, well, of course He was humbly selfless. He is God. He's the God-man. We cannot possibly measure up to Him. Or we might look at the example of Paul and say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. Perhaps the greatest Christian who's ever walked on the face of this planet. There's no way that you can be, you expect me to be like that. No way. Or we may look at the example of Timothy even and say, well, look at who discipled Timothy. The Apostle Paul discipled Timothy. I've never had anyone to disciple me like the Apostle Paul. You expect me to be like Timothy? Not a chance. See, with each of these, we may raise a red flag and and object and say, you know, those are lofty expectations. Those are unrealistic expectations. And we wouldn't be justified in raising those red flags, but we might make the argument. But I ask you, what red flag will we raise when it comes to Epaphroditus? He was just a layman from what we know. Just a layman. He wasn't a famous guy. Nothing else is said about him outside of the book of Philippians. On top of that, he was most likely a Gentile non-Jew redeemed out of pagan worship. Think about that. One primary way that we know this is because of his name, Epaphroditus. Some of you who have studied the Greek world know that there was an ancient goddess by the name of Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of love and of beauty and of excellence. And the Romans had a name for her, and that name was the name Venus. Well, the name Epaphroditus meant belonging to Aphrodite or loved by Aphrodite. And so his name was derived from her name. And so his very name is derived from pagan worship, from idol worship. But then, as it happened to each of us, right? At some point, this former pagan worshiper had a collision with the risen Christ. And he was born again. And now as a Christian, it was said of, or it might have been said of Epaphroditus, that he was a man belonging to Christ. Favored and loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
brethren, I was pondering this this week. It's the testimony of Epaphroditus. And I hope and I pray that often as you ponder this, this collision that Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul had with Jesus, that you often return to the foot of the cross and that you're reminded of the collision that you had with Jesus. That you rejoice and you relish in your salvation often. That God has rescued you from a former life of self-indulgence and self-idolatry and pagan worship to worship the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I hope that you revisit that and rejoice and relish in that. And so like each of us, Epaphroditus is a miracle of God. A trophy of God's grace. He's an example of how God can take a wicked pagan worshiper, transform him into a servant of servant, and then use him as a source of comfort to the Apostle Paul and to the Philippian church. Now what we have here is quite the touching emotional story. These verses are warm-hearted. They're emotion-packed. They are Paul's affirming words about Epaphroditus, the servant of the Lord. And to get the, really get the flavor of this passage, you really sort of have to transport yourself back to what's happening and why Epaphroditus even winds up in Rome to visit Paul. I mean, just imagine that we hear one of our own missionaries that we support, that we hear that one of our missionaries gets put in jail, gets put in prison, And that there's even rumblings about the potential of them being beheaded or being killed. How would that make you feel? Our hearts would be be moved by that, right? By a sense of grief and, and we would feel the sting and the pain and the anguish of this news. And we would want to do something about it, wouldn't we? And that's one of our supported missionaries, brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to do something. We would want to help, but not all of us can go. We can't all jump on a plane and take off right? as a church to go visit and minister to this individual. We can't all travel there. So we choose someone from from our midst. Someone that we trust. Someone who is faithful. Someone who is proven. It's not a pastor or elder that we choose, but we choose a a trusted, self-sacrificial servant in the church. In the case of the Philippians, it was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was that man. Not only chosen, but also one who most likely volunteered to go by the attitude that Paul expresses that this man had in verses 25-30. through He was a servant of servants. Joyful. He volunteered to be able to go and visit the Apostle Paul and and to deliver a financial gift. And so he's one of their best. And think about the sacrifice of Epaphroditus right now. Just consider the fact that he's leaving all of the comforts and securities of his own home and geographical location. Just consider the fact that perhaps he had a family. Perhaps he was married. Perhaps he had children, young or older. He had a job, a particular vocation. And he's leaving all of that, everything that he's familiar with, and he's going to serve by representing the Philippian church as he visits Paul in jail. Self-sacrifice. As we think about that, brethren, and I was pondering and meditating on this text and studying it just for my own life, I just asked myself, you know, in just self-examination, what sacrifices am I making 
for the sake of the gospel. And I think you need to ask yourself the same question as we ponder Epaphroditus and the example of this brother saved by grace, just like you and I. And don't think about sacrifices as if, well, do I need to jump on a plane and go to some foreign country so that for the sake of the gospel I'm beheaded? We often think about that, don't we? Well, if I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to go to some other place and, and I might die you know, or be machine gunned down for the sake of the gospel. Is that what we're talking about with regards to sacrifice? Not quite. As we said, our whole lives are a living sacrifice as believers. But what sacrifices are you making in your home? Start there. Serving your wife. Serving your husband. What sacrifices are you making as parents to invest and disciple your children? What sacrifices are you making in your work environment to serve people and be salt and light in that environment leading to potentially some relationships for the sake of the Gospel? What sacrifices are you making in your neighborhood to get to know your neighbors by name so that you would, you would build a relationship with them leading to uh, proclaiming Christ to them or sharing Jesus with them? How do we lay aside our comforts and securities for the sake of the Gospel? What choices are you making to serve Christ? Brethren, Epaphroditus did not have this imposed on him from what we see in the text. This was a choice that Epaphroditus made. He chose this. With the potential of travel of, in those days, with travel being so difficult, of dying. With the conditions as they were on these ships. He chose this. It wasn't imposed on him. What choices are we making for the sake of the Gospel? What comforts and securities and preferences and all of that are we laying aside that we might put Jesus first and His people first? Now as we consider these verses, verses 25-30, through we're going to look at this passage in three movements or three segments or three transitions, if you will. And we're going to hang our thoughts on those three particular movements, okay? And as we walk through these verses, we're going to see how one brother, Epaphroditus, was a huge comfort to the Apostle Paul in the midst of Paul's trials and troubles. And we're going to learn some wonderful lessons about how we too, perhaps, can be of comfort to one another in the midst of a broken, fallen world where suffering is a reality. Amen? Very much a reality. And so as you take notes, in our first movement here, in verse 25, we find comfort in a connection. We find comfort in a connection. Verse 25, there's this beautiful three-way triangular connection that Paul shares with Epaphroditus and with the Philippian church here. We glean this. And he highlights this connection by way of five words which describe their relationship with one another or their connection with one another. These five descriptive words in verse 25 put together, emphasize the precious comfort derived from the connection and the relationship that they have with one another as Gospel partners. The first three of these are descriptive of his relationship with Epaphroditus, and the latter two are descriptive of his relationship with the Philippian church. So I want you to see this. First, with the first three words, Paul finds comfort in the connection or relationship that he shares with Epaphroditus on behalf of the Philippians. Look with me in verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Remember, he's sending him back, right? 
He's accomplished his mission of, of visiting Paul. But notice how he refers to Epaphroditus. He says, he is my brother. This is very personal. This is an emotion-packed kind of a passage. It's very He's my brother. And this description emphasizes their familial relationship. Their familial relationship. Paul says Epaphroditus is my personal, spiritual, family member. And just consider. Step back and consider what it took to bring these two unlikely kinds of people together into one as a church family. Epaphroditus, right, was a former idol worshiper, a pagan worshiper. And Paul was a Jew who was, yes, well-intentioned, but terribly misdirected, self-righteous Jew who trusted in his works. I mean, they couldn't be more opposites from one another. A Gentile, a non-Jew, pagan idol worshiper, and a Jew who was self-righteous, who trusted in his own righteousness. And they both have a collision with Jesus, and now they're brothers in Christ. What a testimony. Now all has changed. And they are part of the same spiritual family. Two men and individuals who hated each other prior to the collision with Jesus. Now they're brothers in Christ. Epaphroditus is my brother, he says. And when his brother in Christ visits him in his trial and trouble, what great comfort this brought to the aging Apostle Paul in jail or house arrest. Brethren, there's something about this spiritual brotherhood that should also bring us comfort as well. That God has brought us together as one spiritual family. I mean, if we were to to play a video of our former life right behind me for each of us before Jesus, what story would it tell? What story would it tell before Christ? What were you into? Who were you into? What were your pleasures? What kind of a person were you? What prejudices did you have in your heart towards people of a different ethnic background, social brackets, upbringing, whatever, you name it? What story would it tell? I think the story that it would tell is that we were different, wired different, different backgrounds, and yet each of our paths intersect at the foot of the cross, right? And now as Christians, we are no longer God's enemies, but God's children And now as Christians, we are no longer enemies of one another or even close acquaintances, but we are now spiritual family, brothers and sisters in Christ. That should bring great comfort to us. Amen? Great comfort. That now we belong to something much greater than anything that this earthly world has to offer us. We are spiritual family. Paul goes on, and he refers to Epaphroditus in verse 25. Also as his fellow worker. You see that? And not just a a worker, he says, but a fellow worker. So now not only does Paul highlight his familial relationship with Epaphroditus, but also his vocational relationship with him. Notice that? He's my fellow worker. We have a common vocation. Epaphroditus and Paul are co-laborers, co-partners in one gospel enterprise. That right there is our primary employer, he says. They're fellow workers. 
May I remind you that this is not just true of Paul and, and Epaphroditus and the Philippian church, but it's also true of us if you are a Christ follower. If you've turned from your sins, you put your faith in Jesus, His Spirit has come to indwell you, you're a born-again Christian, now your primary employment with your other brothers and sisters in Christ is the Gospel enterprise. You know, tomorrow morning, most of us are going to get up, go to secular jobs. We're going to go work, Right? And that is absolutely good and profitable and it should be done. And the Lord provides through our hard work and that's God glorifying and we leverage our, our um, uh, work base to be able to build relationships with people so that other people come to know Jesus. But I just want to remind you that even though you're going to go off to work, to your employment, just recognize that that's your side job. That is your side job. And quite necessary side job. Quite God-glorifying side job. But your main gig and your main profession, your primary vocation here in this world is Gospel ministry. Amen? That's it. Your job is there to provide for your needs, for you to provide for your family, to practice generosity and give to the Lord and to kingdom work. But that is not the primary thing. And recognize that if you work, again, a secular job, you're not just there to make money. You're not just there to have a wonderful retirement plan. You're not just there to do that. You're there to be a witness for Christ. That is your primary vocation and why God has you in His providence in that particular employment right there because He could have chosen a lot of other things. He chose you for that particular thing. And in this vocation... As Paul says about Epaphroditus, you're not alone. You're not alone. You have, like Paul, other fellow Gospel partners who are in the same vocation of Gospel work. There is great comfort in that. Amen, brothers and sisters? Paul goes on, and he refers to Epaphroditus third in verse 25, if you notice, as his fellow soldier. His fellow soldier. So not only does he highlight his relationship with Epaphroditus in familial terms and in vocational terms, but now also he says we are war partners. We are war partners. We are fellow soldiers, he says. I mean, this imagery shouldn't surprise us. If you recall, Ephesians chapter 6. Remember that whole passage on the, the uh, spiritual armor of God? It says that the Christian life is, is a spiritual war. That it's a full-orbed, face-to-face battle to the death in the Christian life. And in the spiritual war, we're told that we can actually stand firm three different times. How? By appropriating God's spiritual resources, the armor of God, and by means of prayer, walking in God-dependence. Remember that passage? Spiritual war. Paul says, Epaphroditus, my bro, is not just my bro, but he's also my military war partner. He's a fellow soldier, and we're fighting side by side in the spiritual fight called the Christian life and Christian ministry. We are gospel partners. And I want to just ask you, as you think about this, how often do you view other Christians in the same way? As war partners? As fellow soldiers. And how often are you comforted by the great reality that God has placed others in the same battlefield, other believers, so that when one of us falters, the others are there to pick us up and vice versa? How comforting is that? We should be devoted to that. 
and find great comfort in it as believers. Paul finds comfort in his connection, in his relationship with Epaphroditus, his gospel partner, and he thanks God for him. J.B. Lightfoot, in his gospel, uh, writes this, in his gospel partnership with Paul, Epaphroditus was one with Paul in sympathy, one with him in the work, and one with him in danger. This brought Paul much comfort. I love that. Well, those first three words or titles in verse 25 are in relation to Epaphroditus. What about in relation to the Philippians? Look in verse 25. Paul says, Epaphroditus is also your messenger. Your sent one. Sent on a special mission. What was that special mission? He came to deliver a special needed financial gift to Paul. Right? He speaks of this generosity of the Philippian church in, in chapter 4, verses 10 and following, where he uh, commends them for their financial gift. Epaphroditus came to deliver that. And Paul even says, you know, I, I live contently. And I want you to know it's not even about the gift that Epaphroditus has brought me on your behalf. It's about the reality that I am looking to the blessing that God is going to give you because of your generosity, because of your love for me, for the sake of the gospel. So he's going to affirm them. But that's why Epaphroditus came also to deliver this gift. He was their sent one who delivered this blessing But Paul also adds in verse 25, and implied, He is your minister to my need. See that? What need was that? Well, in addition to his financial needs, Paul had needs beyond just financial needs. And I submit to you, brethren, that Paul needed encouragement. And Paul needed comfort. Paul needed companionship. And that could only come when brothers in Christ came to visit him, right? So he ministered to Paul's need beyond the financial need. Epaphroditus' very presence brought comfort to the Apostle Paul as he is there with Paul, interacting with him, ministering to his needs. Listen, Epaphroditus, brethren, became an extension of Christ's helping hand to Paul from the Philippian church. To at least be able to see Epaphroditus was a blessing to Paul and an extension of the Philippian church to the Apostle Paul. Right? They couldn't all go with him to visit him. Epaphroditus was that wonderful, loving extension of care and concern and comfort. You know, it's now interesting that as a family, for the first time, we can identify with just a little bit of this. As you know, our three sons are back in Southern California. They're quite busy with work and school and all of that. So they can't always visit, right? Let alone at the same time all three of them visit us. So they come one at a time or two at a time. Rarely all three have been here, right? As some of you know. But you know what's so comforting? That just one of our sons, when one of our sons is able to visit, that comforts us just the same. Because that one becomes an extension of the others. We love that one. They're unique, right? As you parents know, you love each of them the same. But they're also representative of the others. And we talk about memories with one of them, and they're talking about their brothers who aren't there and all of that. But at least we have one of them. We get one, and it's through that one that now we feel a sense of presence of the others. You know what I mean? Epaphroditus is that guy from the Philippian church. They couldn't all be there, but he's an extension of love from the Philippian church, and this brought Paul great comfort. Great comfort. And so from these five descriptive words in verse 25, 
we observe that Paul derives great comfort in his connection or in his relationship with Epaphroditus and with the Philippian church. He's reminded, even in his great trial and trouble, that he's not alone. And brethren, these titles should also remind us of the fact that we are not alone. And that should comfort us. That we have this wonderful gospel connection, gospel relationships, that we are gospel partners side by side. Amen? Secondly, secondly, we find comfort in a commissioning. We find comfort in a commissioning in verses 26 through 28. And what we mean by this is that Paul is going to derive much comfort from now his commissioning of Epaphroditus to return back to the Philippians. He's going to send him back. He's going to commission him to go back to the Philippian church. Let me show you this. Note first that Paul is commissioning Epaphroditus to return to Philippi for Epaphroditus' sake. He's going to talk about sending him back for his own sake in a minute. But first of all, he wants to commission Epaphroditus to return back to Philippi for Epaphroditus' own sake. I mean, if Paul could do something for his brother in the Lord, Epaphroditus, he's going to do it. He's been there. He's finished his mission. Right? Epaphroditus um, most likely is not asking to leave. But Epaphroditus wants to do something for his brother. So what's he going to do? He's going to send him back to them. Right? Verse 26, because he, Epaphroditus, was longing for you all. Though joyful and self-sacrificial, Epaphroditus is longing for them. He's got this intense and fervent yearning is the idea. He's got this intense and fervent yearning for the Philippians. And, verse 26, he was distressed. This means that Epaphroditus is in deep emotional distress for his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ. Question, what's the matter with Epaphroditus? Is he some kind of an emotionally unstable person? Some flake, right? Messenger getting cold feet, wanting to abandon the mission like John Mark does in the book of Acts? Is that what's going on here and why Paul wants to send him back? I think he clarifies what he, why he wants to send back Epaphroditus. Look at verse 26. Because you heard that he was sick. Because you heard that he was sick. Listen, this is really precious here. Epaphroditus is worried about them because they're worried. He's concerned about them because they're concerned about him. I love this. Right? They've heard that he was sick. This happened on the way from Philippi to Rome. That was approximately 750 mile journey on cargo ship from Philippi to Rome in those days. Epaphroditus almost dies. Remember, no planes, no trains, no automobiles in those days. At least, at least a 30 day journey from Philippi to Rome. Travel was brutal. Conditions weren't always very good, sanitary-wise. So on his way to Rome, Epaphroditus gets sick. He almost dies. In fact, Paul mentions a serious illness three different times. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 30. That Epaphroditus was sick. And by the time that Epaphroditus gets to Rome, the church knows that he's been sick. They just don't know how bad it was. How severe it was. Just that he was seriously sick. Part of the update in the letter is about Epaphroditus, right? 
This is what happened to him. This is how Epaphroditus is doing. And I'm sending him back to you. He's going to tell them all those details. What I want you to note here is that Epaphroditus isn't even thinking about himself. It's not that his needs don't matter, even to him, but he's so humble, so sacrificial, that their needs matter more than him. And that is the heart of humility, isn't it? That we've been learning about. His needs take second, take backseat to the needs of his brothers and sisters at Philippi and the needs of Paul. Epaphroditus is more worried that they are worried and anxious. You see that? He's so concerned that they had heard that he was sick and he couldn't bear the thought of them being in anguish over the fact that he was sick. What a heart. What a heart. (laughs) I had a brother like this, thinking about this this week. Brother in the Caribbean. Um, on mission trips that I took. And I remember hearing about the fact that this brother was sick with our organization at the time. So a couple of us got on the conference call, called the hospital with a couple of other brothers who were there with him. And we get on the phone. He answers the phone. Now he gets on the phone and we say, Brother, we heard that you have been seriously ill. We want you to know that we're thinking about you. We want you to know that we are praying for you. And you know what his response was? He says, Oh, brother. He, He was Latino, so he had a strong accent, okay? Brother, brother, campus. Oh, brother, I'm so sorry. People have worried you guys. I'm so okay, brother. It's all good. God is a good and kind God. God is gracious, he says. Please don't worry. I'm okay, brother. What a heart. It was precious. Left an impression on me as a young pastor at the time about how selfless this man, how supernatural of it, his response, right? Spirit-wrought kind of response that can only come about because of the Spirit of God working with us. It's the same with Epaphroditus, brethren. Here's a gospel partner who isn't concerned for himself. He's concerned for them, that they're worried, that they're concerned about him. And so take note, because Paul is concerned that Epaphroditus is concerned, that they're concerned... Paul says, it's my desire to commission him to return for his sake. I want my brother to no longer worry about you because you're worried and you're concerned and I'm concerned because he's concerned that you're concerned. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And in turn, when he arrives, I'm going to be comforted by my dear brother that he's comforted. So Paul commissions Epaphroditus to return for Epaphroditus' sake. But also he commissions Epaphroditus to return to Philippi for his own sake, for Paul's own sake. Look at verse 27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, brethren, if Epaphroditus would have died, I would have, it would have added suffering to my suffering. Sorrow to my, suffer, to my sorrow, but God stepped in and was merciful, spared the life of Epaphroditus, my brother. Note here Paul's acknowledgement of the sovereign mercy of God. That God is sovereign over sickness. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign even over death. If it's your time, you're going to go, okay? You don't need to be fearful. Unless you haven't given your life to Christ, then you should live in fear, Right? But if you know where you're going, you don't need to be fearful. Your days are numbered, right? Then you know where you're going. God is sovereign over it all. 
under His sovereign care is sickness and death and all of that. And so he expresses gratitude for God's sovereign mercy. Paul's experience also here is a reminder to us that God will never give us more than we are able to handle. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Go there with me. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Keep your finger there in Philippians. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation or testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. In other words, you're not alone. Your testing is known by others. Others have treaded the same path that you have, he says. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. In other words, God will never give you more than you can handle by His grace, Christian, but with the testing or temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. This was the case in Paul's life with regards to Epaphroditus. In God's goodness, God always provides a way for you to stand firm in the midst of testing, to be victorious so that you grow and you mature in Christ. For Paul, God was merciful to him by sparing the life of Epaphroditus and in so doing, even strengthening the faith of Paul, giving him courage, helping him to be a more God-dependent man, etc. And so mark this. Paul is going to derive much comfort in his commissioning of Epaphroditus to return back to Philippi first because when Epaphroditus arrives to Philippi, the Christians there are going to rejoice. They're going to be refreshed by Epaphroditus and Epaphroditus will no longer be longing for them and be concerned for them. It's for Epaphroditus' sake first. And second, Paul derives much comfort in this commissioning because as Paul knows that they are all refreshed together. Epaphroditus, the Philippians, he himself will rejoice in their joy. Look at verse 28, we see this. Therefore I have sent him, Epaphroditus, all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. All Paul can do is visualize the joy of his brethren, the Philippians and Epaphroditus, them knowing that he's safe and sound, he's now in their midst, and he was faithful and accomplished his mission of delivering the monetary gift and also caring for Paul's needs, even for companionship and encouragement and all of that. He can just visualize this, and this brings comfort to Paul. It's so remarkable that even now, he's not self-absorbed in his own troubles, right? So as to be not mindful of the needs of other people around him, I will be comforted by the knowledge that you will be comforted. So I'm sending back Epaphroditus to you. I'm commissioning him to return back to you. Well, thus far, we find comfort in a connection or relationship. We find comfort in a commissioning here. Finally, thirdly, we find comfort in a command. We find comfort in a command in verses 29 and 30. Here Paul is going to command them, give them a couple of imperatives, and place some responsibility on the Philippians when they receive Epaphroditus, when he arrives on the scene. Right? He's finished his mission, and so he commands them to extend comfort and encouragement to Epaphroditus when he arrives in their midst. How will they do that? Look at verse 29. Receive him, receive Epaphroditus, then in the Lord. 
in the Lord there is that a reminder of our connection with one another, of our relationship with one another. And it's in the realm of this Christian grand enterprise of the Gospel in the Lord. Receive Him as one in the Lord, right? But also when Epaphroditus arrives, the sense of receive is this idea of, of welcome this brother. Welcome him. Right? It's the idea of practicing hospitality toward this brother. And notice, don't do it reluctantly or begrudgingly, but do it what? With all joy. Happily. This is a joyful celebration, Philippian church. When your brother arrives, it's a joyful celebration. Now Paul doesn't say this because he's got doubts that they're not going to welcome him joyfully. But he's reminding them. Like every good faithful shepherd does. Ever the faithful shepherd, the Apostle Paul, is reminding these Philippian believers of what is most important when Epaphroditus arrives, right? Encouragement and comfort and receiving him and welcoming him with all joy. Just like parents, right? Ever lovingly reminding our kids of the things that are important. And I think spiritual, good spiritual leaders are the same way. I call it uh, deliberate repetitiveness. Right? As leaders, we need to be deliberately repetitive as far as reminding the sheep of what's important in accordance with God's Word, beginning with us. This is what is important. Faithful shepherds do that, and the Apostle Paul is doing that here. Receive him then in the Lord. You already know this. Just by way of reminder, he's already said that they're a very joyful congregation. They're very loving. They're very warm-hearted, Right? says, receive him then in the Lord and hold men like him in high regard. You see that? Why should they do this? Why should they hold men like him in high regard? Verse 30, because he came close to death for the sake of Christ. How? Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Oh, brethren, this is really, really important. So please pay attention. Here we find the principle of affirmation and commendation in the church and in the Christian life. Paul has spoken so much about humble sacrifice throughout this context, as you know, right? In the previous context, showing the example of Jesus, showing himself as an example by God's grace, showing the example of Timothy, even talking about uh, Epaphroditus, right, as an example. It's all about humble selflessness and sacrifice, and that is good and profitable, and we should be pursuing that. In the midst of that context of humble self-sacrifice, Paul now says, hey, honor Epaphroditus because this gospel partner put his life on the line for the sake of Jesus and for my sake. Honor him. Welcome him. You couldn't all be here, but he risked his life to complete your service to me. He's not speaking, by the way, about the fact that they have been unfaithful in verse 30 in some deficiency. It means that they just can't be there physically to be with him and to comfort him and encourage him. Who, who did that on their behalf? Epaphroditus. He says, he's been faithful. Welcome him. Honor him. He accomplished his mission to bring comfort to me, to complete your faithful service to me. Listen to this. Paul, a self-sacrificial servant himself, recognizes that this man, Epaphroditus, a sinner saved by grace, just like you and I, chose this. He chose this to leave the comforts and securities that he knew behind. To potentially leave a family and kids and all of that. To leave a, an occupation potentially for a time. 
to leave what he knew was, was familiar to him, to come be with Paul and minister to him. And Paul says, you need to commend this man for that. Honor him for that. He's been faithful. Now again, why does Paul have to command them to affirm and commend Epaphroditus? Again, is he is he's having to say this because there's doubt that they will not honor Epaphroditus, that they won't be welcoming? I don't think so. Again, he's a pastor. He's doing it by way of reminder. He's a spiritual shepherd, right? Spiritual shepherds must do that. Reminders. Because we're forgetful people beginning with us. But also, I submit to you that and isn't it true that we need a reminder about affirmation and commendation, brethren, because there are, there's a tendency in some people to be hesitant about giving or showing honor to others. Almost like a sense of uneasiness about commending or honoring people. You know, it's almost as if some folks have this attitude and think to themselves, you know, it's, it's, it's my job to keep them humble. It's my job. Maybe we wouldn't articulate it that way but we almost function that way. It's my job to keep them humble, right? It's almost as if it's their job to cut people down to size so that everyone knows and that person knows, hey, we're all equal. And I'm going to emphasize that to you, we're all equal. There's a tendency in some people to think that way. This proud arrogance. I mean, can you imagine if Paul took that stance and that posture? Hey, Take it easy, guys, when Epaphroditus arrives. We don't want... We've been talking so much. I've been writing you in chapter 2 about humility and selflessness and all of that. Be careful that you don't, you don't overdo it when you see you know, Epaphroditus so that he doesn't get puffed up. You know what I'm saying? Let's not do him a disservice. Let's keep him humble. Let's keep Epaphroditus humble. You humble people, Right? He doesn't do that. Paul says, this dear brother, this gospel comrade, put his life on the line for the sake of Christ and for my sake. Honor him for his courage. Right? Welcome him. Celebrate his arrival. Such commendation and affirmation, brethren, is huge. Right? Just as important as correction is, and correction is absolutely necessary because of sin and brokenness. We're not where we should be. There should be loving admonishment and correction coming alongside of one another in that way. But just as important as correction is, commendation and affirmation is also equally important. And you can think about application in the context of your home. How often do you practice affirmation and commendation with your spouse? Hey, honey, thank you for working so hard for our family and for providing for our family. Hey, honey, thank you for washing my laundry this week, sweetheart. Thank you that I never have to think about whether there's going to be clean clothes in the drawers or in the closet. Because you always do that. And I'm sorry that I forget to thank you for that. So thankful for a warm meal, honey. Thank you. Right? Kids, thank you, dad and mom. We may not always agree on everything, but I know that you love me. I know that you want to honor the Lord. And I know that you're pointing me in the direction of the Lord. I want you to know that I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Affirmation. Commendation. What about in the church? Hey, brother, sister, thank you for that service. I so appreciate you. I want you to know, right? Some of us were doing other things, right? And meanwhile, you were here at the church building doing this and doing that. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for your sacrifice to the Lord and for your people. 
It applies to those things. It applies even in the way that we honor all people. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Scripture is clear about this issue of, of, of showing honor and deference for those who are in authority over us, right? Whether it's a government in society or even spiritual leaders in the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, Honor all people. You say, what does the Greek say in that word, uh, that word all? It's all. All, without exception. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Ready for this? This one hurt me. Honor the king. An application of that for us would be our governing authorities. Right? Show respect. Show deference. You say, man, but sometimes we disagree. Absolutely. And sometimes they're going to command us to do things that God has called us to to do. Or not to do things that God has called us to do. What do we do? We respectfully, right, honor the Word of God. Amen? We will do that. But I am so, so weary of Christians all over social media cussing or alluding to cuss words at the government. Even in their own hearts thinking that way. Bitter, resentful, condescending, demeaning in our words towards the governing authorities. When Paul says to Timothy, we need to be praying for our governing authorities. We need to be praying for Biden's salvation. We need to be praying for the Washington officials to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? And where they command us to disobey the Word of God, we will not bow to that. We're going to follow the Lord, but make sure that we are Christian in the way that we do it. Amen? There's so much fleshliness and so much hypocrisy and self-righteousness in our churches in the way that we go about doing that. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Uh, ouch, right? What about your spiritual leaders in the church? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Who would those be that labor among you, church? Your elders, your pastors, your overseers. And who have charge over you in the Lord. That is in this grand gospel enterprise. In Christ. In this Christian faith. Right? And give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Key texts. Key texts. Convicting texts for all of us. Right? There are going to be disagreements. Differences of opinion that we may have. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, grace informs and shapes the way that we disagree and the differences of opinion that we have, right? And there is a pecking order in society. Authority and submission structures exist. It's not me telling you that. It's the Word of God that tells you that. And even when we disagree with those authority structures, we need to do it by uh, graciously and in love. Amen? Not as non-believers. Not as fleshly pagans but as Christians who have been redeemed and been rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Let us, let's act like it. Let's live out and flesh out who we are in Christ. Amen? In this particular area. Sobering responsibility before the Lord. By the grace of God, we must be joyful in this showing of honor and deference. And so notice, through the example of Epaphroditus, we glean these wonderful lessons of how we too can be of comfort to one another in the midst of a broken, fallen world 
where suffering is a reality, right? Did you know that each of us have been called to a ministry of comfort? In closing, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me show you this. Each of us have been called to a ministry of comfort in the lives of others and opening our own lives for others to come and comfort us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, God comforts us in our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our what? Of our comfort. Notice, God is the God of all comfort. He lavishes comfort upon us. He fills our cup on an everyday, daily basis, brothers and sisters, with His wonderful comfort and encouragement. Why does He do this? Obviously to comfort us because He loves us. He cares about us personally, but also so that we are comforted by God in our suffering and we're able to come alongside of others and comfort them as well in their affliction, right? And on and on the beautiful, precious cycle goes from one Christian to another, comforting one another as Epaphroditus was a comfort to Paul and so was Timothy, his gospel partners. And so it's out of that inexhaustible reservoir of God's comfort toward us that we then are able to come alongside of others to their aid and comfort them. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. And I'm going to close this in prayer, okay? Father God, we thank You for the wonderful Gracious Father that You are, You are the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. Oh Lord, we could spend ages here bearing witness to how You fleshed that out in our own personal lives and the life of our church. Thank You, Lord. Thank You. And we also pray that as You comfort us and lavishly encourage us, that we would be mindful of others as Epaphroditus, a sinner saved by grace just like us, came alongside of Paul to comfort him. Thank you for the beautiful connection that we see there in Jesus. And it reminds us of the connection that we have with one another and that we are not alone in the race and the fight of the Christian life. We know that we can stand firm, not only individually as we appropriate your word and prayer, but also that we can do it communally and we must do it communally as a church. By your grace and for your glory, we pray all of these things And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.